Vision, the International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Calvin Ng, and on this edition we'll feature the movement of water and dancing PhD students. But first up, we've got the news. A new study published in the journal Nature has found the reason to explain why the virus responsible for avian flu or bird flu is so deadly in people. Researchers from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston found that pieces of protein inside the H5N1 virus form tube-like structures that obscure strands of RNA that are formed when host cells are attacked. The RNA would normally trigger an infection alarm and prompt the body's immune system to act. The researchers say the finding would help in the design of drugs to block this action. Back in 2006, virologists from the US and Japan found that the bird flu virus prefers to bind to a receptor that is more commonly found in cells deep in the lung in the alveoli. Back in 2006, virologists from the US and Japan found that the bird flu virus prefers to bind to a receptor that is more commonly found in cells deep in the lung in the alveoli but the receptor preferred by human flu viruses is more prevalent in the mucus lining of the nose and sinus, as well as the throat, trachea, and bronchi. This may explain why avian flu hasn't transferred successfully from one human to another, since a virus is likely to hole up in a part of the airway that does not cause coughing or sneezing, the means by which the flu virus is usually transmitted among humans. And now we have Associate Professor Kendall McGuffey explaining to Ian Wolfe how he can determine how much carbon trees are pulling from the atmosphere by measuring where the water in the atmosphere comes from. My name is Kendall McGuffey. I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Advanced Materials at the University of Technology, Sydney. Kendall, you're looking at the water cycle. Yes. What we've been looking at is the water cycle at the land surface. I mean, I got interested in this through some work on tropical deforestation, not actually going out and chopping down trees, but uh, modelling tropical deforestation in climate models. So basically changing the surface characteristics in the areas that are forested and then trying to understand the reaction of the climate model and by understanding the reaction of the climate model to understand what might happen in the actual climate system. So uh, people can actually plan by modelling things out first and seeing what happens? Rather than plan for the deforestation, we wanted to kind of construct a case for saying, well, perhaps we shouldn't be doing this. And certainly the results showed that we shouldn't really be doing this. I mean, we got interested in the water cycle because that's what trees do, is have a big role in the water cycle. And so if you remove what are big, tall trees with lots of wet leaves that re-evaporate lots of water, and you replace them with scrubby grassland, a few bits and pieces of bushes and so on, 
then that changes the amount of water that gets re-evaporated into the atmosphere. Because of the nature of the Amazon, that water that doesn't get re-evaporated can't be rained out again. So ultimately the amount of rainfall decreases. So how are you looking at the water in the atmosphere? How do you tell it comes from the forest and, say, not from the ocean? Well, that's an interesting thing, and that leads us into the isotopes. These are stable isotopes, so these are naturally occurring isotopes. They're not radioactive anyway. So they are around in small amounts in water naturally. Just to give you an idea, they're in like a few parts per thousand. For some of them, in particular, deuterium isotopes are in the parts per thousand, and there are oxygen isotopes that are less common. And this is the same deuterium that they were looking at for fusion power? Yeah, although these get sometimes called isotopes, they're not technically isotopes in the sense that, that, yeah, if you're being really pedantic about it, they're generally called water isotopes. But isotopes are variations on single elements. These are you know, molecules, but they have a... So one of, in the case of water, one of the hydrogen atoms is substituted by a deuterium atom so that it becomes a slightly heavier water molecule. We have an oxygen isotope, say oxygen 18 instead of 16, and we substitute that in instead of the oxygen molecule, then we get different water molecule again. So we have several different water molecules. We've got the what we call regular water, and then what we all learned about water with the, the two hydrogens and an oxygen 16. They're in like parts per thousand. So one example is people you went to school with, how many were twins? You know, everybody knows a twin, but classrooms aren't full of them. So they're about that common. Everybody knows one. So they're countable. They're not minuscule quantities. So we can count them and measure them reasonably easily. Because they're slightly different masses, then they behave in slightly different ways. So what are now heavier molecules? They're called isotopologues, I think is the correct name. But everybody calls them water isotopes, so there's there's no point in being overly pedantic about it. But the heavier molecules can behave slightly differently. They are less easy to evaporate out of the liquid phase so that they tend to be less common in water that's been evaporated from somewhere like water that exists in the clouds and the atmosphere compared to the ocean. The ones that do get evaporated, they will precipitate out more easily so that they will tend to be more common in the precipitation than in the moisture that's in the atmosphere, the water vapour. So we can, by gathering up this water and analysing the concentrations, we can basically get some kind of history as to where this water has been. That's amazing. It's really quite an interesting way of finding out about the processes that are going on. What it gives us is a kind of broader picture of things that are happening over a large area. Because obviously, if you think, the example that we've worked on was the the Amazon. Uh, Making measurements in a single spot is obviously difficult in that kind of environment. So what this offers is a way of integrating. So what's happened, what kind of evaporation and precipitation processes have been happening over a basin scale, hundreds thousands of kilometres, rather than just measuring at a single site with a single instrument or uh, with mm-hmm. a single rain gauge. So you can tell a lot about what's going on with the water and what's happening with the trees and how they're contributing to the atmosphere. 
Yes, this work on the recycling was, I mean, it goes back into the 70s when the problem of Amazon deforestation was just coming up and people were raising it as a potential problem. And what people who were working on it then, Brazilians who had actually a really good record of isotope observations, they showed that water that was falling out as rain in the central Amazon basin had been recycled several times by the time it got to there. The forest, unusual and it's very useful to use it as a case study because it's pretty flat, it's encased in almost on three sides so that there's only one input for the water vapour so it basically travels up the river and gets recycled as it travels up river. So it's a reasonably easy case to model, you can do it with fairly simple models and you arrive at this, as I said, this conclusion that water that has been rained out in the upper basin has been recycled several times. I see that that wasn't our study, that was a, a very early study on the Amazon basin. So what we tried to do was try and look at the changes in the isotopes over time to see whether there was a change in the cycle that said yes or no to Amazon having been deforested. As the deforestation or the increase in population in the Amazon has progressed over the last 20, 30 years, could we find a signal that said this had some influence on the hydrological cycle? We did that by analysing some of the isotope records that have been collected in several places in the Amazon basin. I mean, basically what happens is that the processes of evaporation through the trees, the water that gets evaporated can either come through the trees themselves, through the root system up and exit through the leaves in a simplistic way, not being a plant physiologist, I'm probably brushing over lots of complex things, or it can be evaporated directly from the leaves as if it had rain that falls on the leaves, some of it just evaporates away, or some of it can fall through onto the ground and evaporate from the ground or the rivers. So each of those processes has a different isotopic signal because different things are happening. Plants moderate the flow of water and they impose a sort of time lag on what happens to the moisture. If you look at the flow of the transpiration at equilibrium, then it doesn't distinguish between different isotopes. Evaporation from the leaves doesn't usually distinguish because in the long term all of that moisture, the leaves dry out and all of that moisture dissipates. The stuff that evaporates from the soil and the, and the rivers, there is some differentiation there because it's a store that preferentially the lighter molecules escape sooner. Mm. So by looking at the, the balance of those fluxes, we can put some numbers on how much moisture comes through transpiration and how much is evaporated from the ground. Right. Does that tell you how much less forest there was before if it's changed? Yes, it does, because what we saw at looking at the historical data was a change from a signal that suggested that there was more, that the character of the water fluxes was more characteristic of less trees. So what we found was since about the, the 70s or so, the, the signature has changed to imply that there's less recycling going on. So there's more runoff in the wet season and less recycling, which is suggestive of fewer trees. So that's one aspect, and you might say, well, we could tell there are fewer trees by going and looking at the trees. But this is really just the beginning. This is a way of kind of evaluating the technique because the other difficulty, particularly with climate models, is this upscaling problem. We can make measurements at a point scale, but we want to know what's happening at a larger scale. So what the isotopic measurements tell you is by measuring rainfall at a single point, you're understanding or getting some information as to the ratio between transpiration and evaporation over a much wider scale. So that's that was really where we were heading with this, was to get that bigger scale picture. And what was the next step? The next step, and I don't think we're there yet actually, 
is to tie these water measurements into the carbon cycle because that's where people will be interested, taking it to the next stage and to looking at the isotopes and how they affect the carbon cycle. I mean, as well as yeah, the stuff that we've done on oxygen isotopes and water isotopes in the hydrological cycle, these isotopes also tell us about what the plants are doing with, with sugars and so on. If you measure the oxygen isotopes in various plant sugars because the heavier isotopes and the lighter isotopes get absorbed differently, so it tells us about what's going on in the plants, in the chemistry that's going on in the plants. So it determines the way of measuring primary productivity. It's a way of, as I said, measuring the recycling and it's a way of measuring the net productivity of the biosphere on global scales. These techniques are actually used in a range of places and the ideas I was talking about about being able to analyse what's happening on a larger scale have been used in Canada. A guy called John Gibson from Environment Canada has used them to look at the nature of the water balance of what are called terminal lakes. So these are lakes in the Arctic. Obviously it's a difficult place to instrument. We can't go in and look at things in detail there. It's, It's a very difficult environment to work in. But if we can go in and take a sample of the water that's in the lake and we know something about the environment then we can say well this water has been deposited by the rain we know the countries of the rainfall and we can tell how much evaporation has happened over the catchment of the lake so from a single sample you can say well this lake has been subjected to this amount of evaporation the key is that it it offers a, a kind of integrator of the atmosphere land surface interchange over a wider area Amazing. So by looking at the water, you can tell the history of the water and the history of the surrounding forest and the interaction with the atmosphere. Yes. Yeah, that's about it. it I mean, it, it doesn't tell you everything. about. I mean, nothing tells you everything about the history of the, the individual water molecules, but it does offer something that you can't get from regular measurements. Measurement of water vapour fluxes and the characteristics of those is, is very difficult, very expensive to do. Not that these techniques are cheap, but they do offer the level of integration that that isn't available from point measurements. Kendall McGuffey, thank you very much. That was Kendall McGuffey determining the history of water and what it means for forests and the climate.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Now, two weeks ago, we announced the 2009 AAAS Dance Your PhD contest. Mark West spoke to Dr. Christopher Pettigrew from Cork University about some of his work interpreting science for the stage. To start with, though, we had to dial Ireland. Hello? Hello, Christopher. It's Mark here. How are you? I'm very well, Mark. How are you? I'm not too bad, and I'm calling you to talk about dancing your PhD. Out of all my friends, I thought of you when it came to artistic science because you are the most artistic scientific person that I know, I think. You've got a PhD that I think would uh, go well in dance. What was your PhD? Uh, well, my PhD was on uh, the regulation of splicing and alternative splicing in breast cancer susceptibility genes. And that, that kind of obviously lends itself to dance, don't you think? I think, yeah, absolutely. And you got the nickname Dr. Boob, didn't you? Because you were... uh, I was, yes, given that nickname, yeah. Assuming a PG audience, how would you depict breasts on stage? Oh, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. Um well, they'd have to be in pairs. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know. I think maybe some flesh-covered leotards with some red dots on the stomach, I think, would do me. <laughs> well, is this what you had to do? Because you were telling me before that in your final seminar for your PhD, there was a suggestion that do you use people instead of using diagrams in this presentation, and you'd started on the choreography. What? Uh, how far along did you get? Uh, well, a fair, fair way, I have to say. Um we weren't uh, using uh, people as breasts so much for that idea, but uh, rather to explain the process of splicing, which to uh, the particular audience I had that day was not uh, a biochemical audience as such. It was quite a few chemists and you know, non-biological people there. So in order to explain the splicing process, we were contemplating using a number of volunteers. How would you have done that? I, I admit to being one of those chemists, I guess. Yes. Uh, well... <laughs> In order to do it, I sort of need to explain splicing, I suppose, uh, yes. which is when your gene is divided into uh, introns and exons. Exons are the bit that actually code for the RNA and then the protein itself, whereas the introns are sort of spaces in between these exons. And so the first RNA transcript that's produced by the gene is then the introns are included in that, but then they're cut out and the exons are joined together think of it this way in terms of about four or five dancers uh, standing with their arms outstretched and joined at the hand <laughs> and then as the introns are removed they move to become shoulder to shoulder and just to be the coding part of the transcript. And so this would be like you're also telling me about a science in parliament day that you unfortunately weren't involved in though I'm sure you would have been loved to have been because they... Uh, there was uh, yeah there's particular day, the introduction to the day was a interpretive dance on the story of DNA and uh, unfortunately I wasn't there so I can't give an eyewitness account but uh, the people I know who were involved said it was absolutely tremendous there were rainbow coloured leotards a lot of twirling and uh, expansive hand gestures That's how I like to have DNA and you know gene splicing for that matter mm. uh, described to me I think as Well nothing says double helix like a, a rapid twirl <laughs> well, this is true. And you're no stranger to explaining complex problems through dance, are you? Because in, the, in your law review, you're also a, a law graduate, so uh, in that regard, rather highly qualified. 
And uh, you had to explain in the law review the GST using interpretive dance. Yes, this was back in uh, 19... Oh, no, it was 2000, it was, with the introduction of the GST. And uh, we decided that a good idea for the review would be to explain it in interpretive dance. And there were five of us involved, four dancers and a narrator, uh, the narrator being the most essential component. And uh, we were all dressed in our black tracksuit pants and T-shirts with uh, purple sequined headbands, uh, purple leg warmers, and I think a pink wristband each. Uh, but then we were all given particular characters. And so there was uh, a girl was goods, and then uh, another young gentleman was services, and he was fortunate enough to wear a French maid's outfit on top of his uh, black outfit. And then there <laughs> was tax, and that was the part that I played, and I was given devil horns and a trident. Yes. And... Um, Revenue was the the other character. Yeah, the highlight for me was when we were explaining that um, goods were not necessarily taxed, and uh, this good in question was a chicken. So we had a uh, goods impersonating a chicken. Yes. And we had services coming along and cooking the chicken. Yes. At which point tax became involved, and that was me. So I was able to prod the chicken with my trident. <laughs> So, in this way, did you sort of... Um, there are some subtle things in there, GST, aren't there? Some some things aren't taxed, such as, you know, fresh food. How well, exactly. To... Hence, the, the raw chicken was... was uh, yeah, I was unable to attack it. But as soon as services came and, and cooked it... Then your time came. So That's right. Now, now you're studying at uh, Cork University in Ireland, having done your PhD in Brisbane. What uh, What are you doing now, and how would you express it through dance, should you need to? I had a sneaking suspicion you'd ask me that question, and, and I've really not many ideas. I'm currently, uh, I've moved on from breast cancer to prostate cancer. Yes. <laughs> um, this is an issue of how would you present the prostate in interpretive dance. I'm not entirely sure. Yes, that's a good question. I think a male dancer would be obvious, but apart from that, I'm not uh... flush with ideas. <laughs> Perhaps you could help. Is there anything that Mr. Science could suggest? Um, it's not something my mind, you know, drifts towards in, in its day-to-day -day wandering. Oh, I wonder how I could express <laughs> prostate cancer through dance. Um, Perhaps you could, you could put a, a suggestion box up on the website if anyone has any ideas. That's a great idea, and then maybe I should alert you if any emails come in or any comments come in. And um, Yeah. So the other part of the project is uh, the looking at actual tumours growing from prostates and uh, recurrent tumours. So after surgery, if uh, the entire tumour isn't removed and there's a bit left behind, this can often uh, grow back as a much more aggressive and nasty tumour. Mm. So I was looking at perhaps some sort of uh, tumour character running around in circles and each circle being completed they would then become a little bit more angrier and nastier and a bit more violent with their hand-waving and so forth as they keep going in circles. My immediate thought was something like the blob or something, and it just yes. keeps getting bigger. But it needs to be kind of touching because it's a sensitive topic, so it needs to be... It is a very sensitive topic. Yeah. It needs so to be done with taste. It needs to be a very tasteful version of the blob, I think. And so we can't convince you to film, to make a video of your PhD for entrance into this American Association for the Advancement of Science dance contest 2009 can we well I, I don't know if there's enough time for me to put together a production that i'd be truly proud of 
<laughs> but, you know, perhaps if, uh, you know, suggestions do come through, then I could be uh, persuaded to put together something purely for entertainment value. And Yes, you heard it there. Listeners, if anybody does have any suggestions for Dr. Boob, do email us and uh, I'll, I'll give you all those details at the end. Well, thank you, Dr. Christopher Pettigrew or Dr. Boob. Thank you very much for joining us for this interview. That's been my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And if you have any ideas you'd like Chris to put on stage, email us diffusion at 2ser.com and check out the dance contest on the AAAS website. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, give us some feedback, comments, suggestions, or give us wild, passionate praise, and like to hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send us an email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Calvin Ng. Join us inside your audio device of choice next week for more science wondering on Diffusion Science Radio. Some folks call it poultry geist, but it was Mike the Headless Chicken. All across the country, 1946. The tail of a leghorn was making people sick. A hungry farmer raised his axe and chopped off its head. When the bloody part was over, that chicken was not dead. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Never knew what hit him, but it didn't make him down. To the county fairs and sideshows, they went from town to town. He weren't no fighting chicken, in fact he was a freak. He could have been a contender if he'd only had a beak. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Chicken might have crowed foul, but 
Mikey held his neck up high and gurgled right out loud. The hero of the headless never squawked and never pecked. And when they called him chicken, he took it on the neck. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 the headless chicken. Mike, 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 Mike,